Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie New here, President of the Australian Society of Anaesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's where we talk all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. This episode is not just for anaesthetists. This is an episode for any doctor, any health worker, any patient, anyone who's got an interest in the Australian health system. This episode is for you. This is also an episode that is worth sharing and getting the message out. So the podcast is called Australian Anesthesia. You can find it wherever you find podcasts. So on your inbuilt Apple podcast app, on Spotify, on Amazon, Google Play, just search for Australian Anesthesia. We have a change looming on our healthcare horizon. And if past experience is anything to go by, it will creep in slowly, slowly. But the first big step, it's on its way. If you are listening to this episode before Friday the 11th of June, then there is a special task for you. If you're listening after the 11th of June, don't worry, it's not too late. I will give you more details at the end of the podcast. But in this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Carmen Brown, who's an obstetrician and gynecologist originally from the US, who is now resettled in Australia. And we talk about her experiences, as well as that of her patients, in dealing with managed care in the US. This is very relevant to Australian healthcare at the moment because of the proposal that's been put to the ACCC, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, from Honeysuckle Health. If you want more details on that, then I refer you to my previous episode, episode number 36. Remember, the name of the podcast is Australian Anesthesia. Okay, well, let's get into it. A lot of people always ask, why did we leave the United States? That was the first question we always got. And quite honestly, it was because of these things that we are talking about today. We were literally beyond burnt out with dealing with the system, the insurance companies and all the other stuff that goes along with it. So when we went to New Zealand and saw that there was literally a different way to practice medicine, we were like, you know, this is it. So we packed our bags and decided this is going to be a permanent move. And we moved to Melbourne five years ago now. (laughs) What a gain to our health system to have you here. Well, thank you. I'm just, it's been a reinvigoration of my ability to continue to practice because quite honestly, if you asked me 10 years ago, whether or not I was going to be able to last until retirement age, I would have easily told you absolutely no. And I was looking for other ways out of medicine because I just did not see myself lasting that much longer. Whereas here, I feel like I can easily do this another 15 years. It's a different practice style and it's a lot better, which is why when I saw that managed care thing, I started getting palpitations. That's what drove me out of my last country. I don't want to leave another one. And I always thought it was going to be like, and this goes right to you know, our conversation tonight is because I think I had this idealistic little kid view of medicine. I really thought it was going to be that, you know, you hang up your shingle, you know, you're going to see patients, you'll take care of them and do exactly what evidence says you're supposed to do and everything will be fine. And I got smacked right in the face with real life and, you know, the whole managed care and how you literally cannot do things with a patient or offer them certain treatments or certain medications or anything like that without that middle wedge. And that is the managed care insurance company that literally directs everything. And, you know, it became more and more frustrating. And I spent so much more of my time on administrative tasks than I thought 
that I should as a doctor. And it became just unmanageable and unbearable. Oh, I can imagine. And before I go into it in too much more depth, are you a mix of private and public here? Nope, I am fully public. Wow. Yeah. That's a complete change. So when I was in New Zealand, I was literally running from private. So I had no desire to do private. And in fact, that was like the worst idea in the world for me. And even though I didn't realize that private in New Zealand and here in Australia is very different from private in the United States, I didn't know that, but I didn't care. I've been public since I moved overseas in 2010. And how long were you doing private in the States? I did six years of private in the United States. That was enough. <laughs> so I was just asking because I, I was reading a paper about when it first came in, I think in the 90s. Yes. How it came in and it was this great idea. Everyone was going to be better off. It was going to cost the taxpayer a lot less. It's going to be this great value for patients. The doctors were going to love the system. Mm. So it clearly isn't that way now. It absolutely is not. And I don't remember the change, but I kind of do. Just being a young medical student at the time, I remember when things changed. And you could actually see it, that the changes that you saw in the patient mix that all of a sudden there were all these hospitals that were literally almost popping out of the ground, it seemed like. You know, there were private hospitals and there were public hospitals. And prior to the whole HMO coming in in the like 90s and everything, you did not see private patients at public hospitals. That just did not happen. They always went to private hospitals. And private hospitals did not want government-insured or uninsured patients. That was just not what they wanted. And so it was a very big division between the haves and have-nots. It was very obvious when you went to hospitals. But then all of a sudden, you had this HMO, the PPOs come into the scene. What's an HMO, PPO? So HMO is a health management organization. And that is the one that's, if anything, a little bit more similar as far as understanding what we're used to. So the healthcare management organization, those came about in the 1990s. And basically, it was these for-profit systems that came about. And they would create a system of doctors and hospitals, radiologists and providers, pathology. And they would do it at a special lower cost for members of that organization. You would have to pay a premium or your monthly fee to be a part of it. However, you had to stay in their network. You could not go out of that network. And if you did, they would not cover you for any services outside of their network. And it seemed like a good idea at the time. And the whole point of it was to reduce costs, to allow patients to you know, have great primary care services. So the whole point of that is that you had a gatekeeper, a GP. And in the United States, usually you didn't really have one of those. You would just kind of fragment your care and go to whatever doctor you needed. If my child was sick, I took her to a pediatrician. That's what we do in the United States. You don't take them to your GP doctor. That just wasn't the norm. But an HMO created a gatekeeper where you actually had a GP. They were responsible for your care. And if you needed specialist care, they had to do a referral. Very similar to what we see here. However, if you lived in an area where you didn't have that particular specialist, then that meant that you were out of network, out of pocket. So that means you would have to pay to see that particular specialist. The design in theory was good, but then it became very flawed because it only works if you're in a large metropolitan area that had access to all those things in that network. 
it does not work if you're in a rural or a suburban area that does not have that. So, you know, if you lived in some rural place in Tennessee, being an HMO is not going to be a good idea. In fact, they probably don't even have one in the area because you might have to travel three hours to your bigger city to access any care that's within that network. That could apply to a lot of people in Australia as well. And you mentioned a PPO before. Yes. What's a PPO? So a PPO is what most of us usually prefer. So it's a patient preferred option. I believe that's what it stands for. And with the PPO, you do not have to have a referral. In fact, you could just up and decide you want to go to a specialist just because. You do have negotiated lower prices if you stay within your networks. They have preferred providers within their networks. So say, for instance, if I was, you know, a gynecologist in their network and you came to me, it would be a lot cheaper than if you went to go see Dr. John down the street, who's not in that um, particular network. So the benefit is, is that the patient still has more control over who they see. However, there is still more benefit to staying within network if you're in a PPO. There's also some other interesting things with the pay with the PPO versus the HMO. Most PPOs will have a percentage that you'll have to pay. So with the HMO, the whole theory is, is that there's really no co-pays. However, with the PPO, there's usually a percentage that you'll have to pay. As a patient. Yes, exactly. And so then you start to get into these things like deductibles, which I've been trying to figure out the Australasian term for that. But most of us will have our monthly fees, our premiums that we pay every single month. And that can vary widely depending on if you are single, if you have children, family, that kind of thing. But then you also have on top of that monthly premium, you have a deductible that you have to meet. And that's how much you have to basically pay out of pocket for any of your healthcare expenditures. And after you've met that deductible, then your health insurance will pay 100% after that. Ah, like an excess, I suppose. Exactly, excess. I couldn't remember the term, but you're right. It's like an excess. The problem is the deductible can be extraordinarily high and an inappropriate percentage of a person's income. For example, most of my friends have deductibles that are between two and $10,000 a year. So that's how much they've got to spend first before their health insurance kicks in. Exactly. And you're still paying a monthly premium. That's expensive. Yes, very. Which is why, and I looked up stats just for our talk, 55% of <laughs> Americans are underinsured, which means that they have insurance, but they don't have a level to really protect them. But yeah, it is it's horribly expensive. Wow, because that's what I can see is how they're marketing this, as they call them, their, their customers. We want to give our customers a fixed price. We want to give them financial certainty, which does make it sound attractive. It does. But you can see that potentially over time... We can see it's happened in the States. Yes. Uh, the excess, which has recently been introduced in private health insurance in Australia, can potentially just keep going up and up and up. That's right. And they will, because if you think about it, these companies are still for profit. So in order to make a profit, they have to keep their costs low. And it's a losing proposition if you have a lot of sick patients. You have a lot of people that utilize your services. And I think that's the problem that we had in the United States is that 
They don't want sick people that utilize the services all the time. They want healthy people that literally purchase insurance in that just in case rainy day type of thing and people that don't utilize it very often. And, you know, I was one of those people like, you know, I was a healthy young person. I never went to see the GP like ever. You know, I only went for your annual cervical screening test and that's pretty much it. And so I'm paying these monthly premiums but I wasn't utilizing any services, which was great for them. But if I was the 60-year-old diabetic with neuropathies and all kinds of problems, I would be constantly accessing services, podiatry, and you know whatever else. That cost them a lot of money, which is why they also started to make sure that they would exclude people based on prior health issues. And that was one of the best parts of the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare because before that came about in 2010, insurance companies would completely decline you if you had any prior health issues. And so as you can imagine, that's frightening and it would lead to people doing not appropriate things like please don't write in my chart that I have depression or that, you know, I have this, because if it was a long-standing issue, you're terrified that they could actually decline you and say, no, we're not insuring you. Sorry. Find another company. That's incredible. I read an article today from the States. The company sent nurse practitioners around to their customers to do health checks, but it was also to give them new diagnoses so that then they would either have to increase their premiums or they would exclude them. Exactly. I'm telling you, for profit, there's a problem because if it's all about the profit, there has to be a way to make money and to save money. And to save money is to not take care of sick people. But you're a health company. You're supposed to take care of sick people. But that's the problem. I have a major problem with for-profit health companies. Very good point. I did do some research on Cigna before I did a a little delve into their proposal and in their last year's annual report, they posted a profit of, I can't remember, quite a few billion. Yeah. And I thought, that is money that leaves the health system. Yes. And it's someone who didn't get their surgery when they needed it. Exactly. Exactly. There's got to be a saving some kind of way. There's all kinds of little loopholes that they like to use to make sure that things get declined. My favorite loophole they use is ambulance. That's emergency rooms and ambulances are the things that they like to do a lot on. So say, for instance, you are hiking with your family, you fall down and break your leg and they call the ambulance and take you to the hospital that ambulance might not be a network. So you took an unauthorized ambulance ride. (laughs) Okay, well, you were supposed to call the ambulance and just try to find out if they're in your network. The other thing is, is that the ambulance will take you to the closest hospital, not the hospital in your network. And now you are in violation of your insurance because you're at an out-of-network hospital. Every doctor that sees you, every x-ray that you have, every lab that is drawn is not going to be covered because you are not in network. And um, from a personal perspective, I had that happen to me. So when I was pregnant with my son, I ended up having an emergency and had to get a air ambulance from one hospital to another. Of course, being a doctor, that would happen. Did the expensive one. (laughs) Did the expensive one. Of course, air ambulance. So I took an air ambulance from one hospital to another. That was the only way to get to the hospital because we were living in Hawaii. So I lived in Hawaii before we moved to New Zealand. And so we had to go from one island to another. I was taken to the only tertiary hospital and had my care there. 
and then got this amazing bill. Now, keep in mind, I'm a private obstetrician gynecologist. I had very good health insurance, but I was out of network. Now, I didn't have a choice on the air ambulance. It was an emergency. I did not have a choice on where they took me. That was the only tertiary hospital nearby. So every doctor that saw me, I got a bill for. I got a bill for the air ambulance. So that was really fun. That was $18,000 <laughs> for the ambulance. Yeah, so it was really, they hit me so hard with that bill. And so I spent a week at home with the newborn on the phone as often as I could calling them basically telling them, I dispute this. This is wrong. You cannot do this. I wrote letters. I have like, you know, a two week old baby. I'm writing letters and calling them. The best I was able to do was I was able to negotiate down to just paying the petrol for the helicopter. They, they charged me, I think it was $6,000 for the petrol. Wow. That was the best I could do. And I just, honestly, I gave up. But as you can imagine, I'm lucky because I'm educated. I was able to do that. I was able to fight for myself. I knew how to, you know, reach out to the different networks and to ask for managers and ask for these type of people. If I didn't have that level of understanding or knowing the system a bit more, as you can imagine, that could be catastrophic. If you're a family of three and you're only making $45,000 a year and you get hit with an $18,000 medical bill, that's bankruptcy. Wow. And that is the number one reason why people, uh, no, I'm sorry, credit card debt is number one. Number two reason for bankruptcy in the United States is medical bills. Wow. I do a lot of work in Cambodia and they talk about that level of health funding and driving bankruptcy. You just don't associate it with a wealthy no. country like the US. No. People will go bankrupt. It's usually those surprise bills and it's nothing that you did on purpose. It's not like you were just trying to be cheeky and go to the nicer hospital down the street. That's not what normally happens. It's usually an accident or having some type of problem where you have to access tertiary care and it might not be a network. And well done you for doing that, but you would have rather spent the time with your newborn baby. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it still didn't get off completely. It still had to pay a huge chunk of money. But you know, and once yeah. again, we were really blessed that we had that money, but like, Still, $6,000 is a huge yeah. amount of money. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. And considering you've been paying premiums. Yes. All along, hopefully preventing you from having to pay all these exorbitant fees. All along. I just for fun wanted to see exactly how much insurance would cost if I was home right now. So I just got onto one of these little calculator sites. I put in just a random zip code of my family's address and typed in everything, ages, date of birth and everything. And the plans I got, it was just like, oh my. so most of them had a monthly premium of between five and $600 a month for a family of three based on our ages right now and had an out-of-pocket deductible that you have to reach before the health insurance kicks in of anywhere between five and $10,000 for the year. And I'm just thinking a lot of people don't have $5,000 a year plus the 400 or 500 they're spending a month on that insurance. So it's almost like you're not getting what you're giving. That's just that's so much money. And the whole point is, is don't access it if you don't have to. And unfortunately, if something bad does happen, like you fall and break your leg and you've been really good and not accessing your health care, now you have to pay $10,000 for the insurance to kind of kick in and start paying the rest. So it's kind of a no-win situation. I can imagine that people are just not going to participate in private health insurance when you're up against those sums of money. 
Exactly. Exactly. They'll just take their risks and hope nothing bad happens. I'm glad we talked about what is potentially in store for patients. Uh, I still call them patients. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> what was it like? What was it like being a doctor in private and working with these health insurance companies? I would definitely say if you ask most American physicians, their source of discontent or unhappiness in their like day-to-day lives, and they would probably stay dealing with insurance companies. It's a very different process than in Australia in that as a private physician, which the vast majority of doctors are, so it's a whole different scenario than what we have here, you don't just take one health insurance. You have to usually take them all or a lot of them. And the reason why you do that is because you're trying to maximize the number of patients that can come to see you. If you are very restrictive on what you take, it can be very difficult for you to cover your office and that type of thing because it it might not be a lot of patients with that particular insurance in that area. So for example, if you live in a big city, it's usually not an issue because most of the larger employers are going to have the normal insurance plans, United Healthcare, Cigna, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, those types of things. And so if you take, you know, the top three, five or 10 in your area, you'll be fine. But some doctors actually even have to take more because they might have, you know, a school or university down the street and they might have a steel plant or an aluminum plant or something like that. So there's a lot of different employers with a lot of different types of insurers that they have and it would behoove you to take those. The problem is, is now you have 20 different types of insurance plans you're taking. That's 20 different types of rules for their sets of clients that you have to follow. So that means as a physician, you probably don't have time to sort out who can get their pap smear once every year and who gets it every two years. Who gets a bone density scan at this age and who doesn't? Who gets this type of procedure covered and who does not? You know, it's just so many little nuanced things. You don't have time to do that. So as a physician, you have to hire someone in your office that specifically helps you figure out what each person's individual plan will and will not let them have or access. So that's where you have your person in your office. Usually it's two separate people. You have someone who's a coding and billing expert. So they're the ones that actually help you making sure that you're using the correct codes so that you get reimbursed properly from the insurance companies. And then you have someone who is a prior authorization expert. And they're the ones that literally sit in the office all day long with a headset on. They're calling insurance companies on behalf of these clients. Mrs. X is here. She wants to get a pap smear. Will you cover that? Or on the computer, checking online to make sure that Mrs. X is going to be covered before she comes in for her visit the next day. Because if she's already there with you, it's too late. So what you can do as a physician is if you do a procedure on her and it has not gotten prior authorization, they will not cover that. And so you've done that procedure for free. Can you ask Mrs. X to pay or too late? No, too late. So you either don't do it or you, which is really unfortunate, is that you can bring Mrs. X back another day after you've gotten the prior authorization sorted and she comes back a separate visit, loses another half day of work to come back to get something done. That was a waste of everyone's time. It seems like it's built into the system to make it difficult for everybody. And I think that in and of itself was just really the most frustrating, literally having your hands tied by what you could do and you know it's good medicine. And if I was in any other country, and even if you look in the book, it says, this is what you do. You do this, you do this, you do that. 
if you have all those modalities in your office, you should be able to do those things. But if I did do those, this person would get a bill and she would be very unhappy with me because it was not covered. And so then myself would have to make the decision, I'll just cover that for you. But if I did that for every patient, you would have no business. Wow, so frustrating. I attended a talk from the American Society of Anesthesiologists and they said, I think it was 10% of health workers are coders. Yes. And it's the biggest growing that is. job in American health system at the moment. They need twice as much or something yes. like that. I totally and utterly believe that. In fact, it was such a big thing that I was upskilled because when I went to work as a um, faculty doctor in academic medicine. At the time, I was the only doctor on staff that had done private practice in our obstetric department. When I was doing my coding, I started talking to the different doctors, helping them out. And so the hospitals was like, ding, ding, this is great. She's going to save us money. So they sent me to some coding workshops to get a little bit more upskilled. And then I started teaching the doctors in our office how to do the codes a little bit better and correctly. But when I went to the coding, it was like a conference. And every single year, every college does a coding conference for the doctors. So the American College of OBGYN, they run coding conferences several times a quarter just to, for doctors to go in to learn about the coding and billing and everything. Because you, you can hire someone, but you kind of probably need to know for your own knowledge. We have to do it a little bit in Australia. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, at the moment, we've only got the one set yes. of codes, the Medicare Benefit Schedule. Yes. But potentially there's lots of different codes. Yes. So coming back to what you said at the start, this is not what we went to medical school to learn. No. And so there's the learning, but also doing it every day. I can imagine that would take a fair bit of time. Yes. That I personally would otherwise want to be spending with patients. Exactly. Exactly. And this is the kind of thing I was saying, it drives the wedge between you and patient cares because you start spending a lot more time on paperwork and administrative tasks that you have to do to see the patient, but you're not actually seeing the patient. This is for patient care, but it's not direct patient care. And, you know, that was frustrating. You know, I would come in hours before to make sure my charts were correct and do my charting. We invested in EMRs a long time ago just to help with billing and coding. Like, I truly don't believe that the EMR system in the United States was designed for anything more than to help with the billing and coding. It's really not for helping with patient care and stuff like that. They will say it is to a certain extent, yes, but quite honestly, it's really just to help capture all those episodes that you could possibly make money. But it's not really for the physician, it's really more for the insurance companies. So how did this affect your enjoyment of practicing medicine? I can truly and honestly say that was one of the biggest reasons why I left the United States. The second one was the malpractice aspect, but number one would definitely be the insurance, the interference in my patient care. Having to get on the phone and to plead my patient's case with a person who was not a doctor it just boggled my mind. So that, that's another thing that they will do. You will request an authorization for a surgery. Mrs. X needs a hysterectomy. She's been bleeding. So I have done all the evidence-based things I'm supposed to do. I've done all the appropriate counseling. I've discussed all the risks and benefits and alternatives. We've decided hysterectomy is the best for Mrs. X. 
now I have to get my prior authorization staff to get on the phone and ask her health insurance company to agree to let her have a hysterectomy. If they say no, then that's more paperwork. So then I have to submit paperwork as to why, as this you know senior gynecologist, that I think she needs this surgery. And interesting enough, that the people on the other end that were making these decisions were not doctors. They were insurance people following a tick box saying, this person doesn't have anemia, this person doesn't have this, therefore she cannot have her hysterectomy. So it's a very flow chart thing that they follow. If I wanted to challenge their decision, I would have to get on the phone and speak to one of their insurance people and to plead my patient's case. So you're actually pleading the case to sometimes not even a clinician in your same specialty. So they don't understand exactly what you're saying. Having to do that, fighting for your patients, what they need day in and day out, that totally will stress you out and degrade your quality of life. And it also takes away from why you went into medicine in the first place. Like all of a sudden you start feeling like a cog in the wheel and not even like a clinician. I felt like I was becoming more of a paper pusher than actually the hands-on physician. I could not see myself doing that another 15, 20 years and I knew it wasn't changing. They're making so much money, you know, 10, 15 million dollars a year in salaries. It's a huge business. I didn't see it going away anytime soon so I, I knew I had to make a change and only way to do that is to leave. And we're very lucky to have you in Australia. Thank you. <laughs> I love it here. Thank you. I can just imagine how belittling that must feel. It is. It frustrates you. I remember one time I had a patient that had a hysterectomy and I was going to see her at the hospital and to do rounds and I could not find her chart. And this woman I'd never seen before, not a nurse, has my patient's chart. And I'm like, sorry, excuse me. She was the insurance compliance person that the woman's insurance company had sent over. These people have access and rights to the patient's chart. She was reviewing my chart to see why I felt that the patient deserved another night in the hospital because they had only agreed to allow her to stay a certain amount of days. But my patient wasn't ready to go home. She still had a significant amount of pain and was not supported at home. And I, I really felt that she needed another day. This woman was looking at my patient's chart and told me she couldn't find a reason as to why she needed to stay and said that she was going to decline that night, that she couldn't stay. She had to go. So I had to tell my patient that she had to leave. Yeah, and then she made me go in there and tell her. (laughs) That's even worse. It makes me look like I'm horrible, but you know, I don't care. I will tell. So I went right back in. I told the patient, I said, I'm sorry, your insurance compliance officer was just here. She says that they're going to decline your night's stay. And you know, she was really upset. And we were trying to put our heads together to figure out how we can allow her to stay another night. Could not come up with anything. So the option was is that she could stay and pay out of pocket. And that would have been like $1,000 for the night. <laughs> she doesn't have. So yeah, that's the kind of thing that you had to put up with. So you're constantly diminished as a physician. Your autonomy is diminished. The amount of administrative tasks and paperwork and everything that you do is ridiculous. And insurance companies have a much better lobby and a much better publicity than we do as physicians because in the United States, there's a very not good feeling that patients have about their physicians because I think they think that we're getting all this money, but we're not. (laughs) That's the thing. That's not what we're getting. It's the insurance company. So if you want to look at the average salary of a physician, 
it's way, way more in the pocket of the insurance companies and not in the pockets of the physicians. But they have a really good publicity going around them. And so you don't see that as a patient. You just assume because the doctor is your only point of care. My mean doctor threw me out of the hospital early. My mean doctor said I couldn't have my hysterectomy. My doctor wouldn't let me have this medication. But it wasn't me. Your insurance company said you could not have this. So I made sure that I tried to educate my patients and let them know that. But, you know, you're throwing pebbles in the ocean. They can't fight that. You know, it's hard. Oh, my goodness. So we have an opportunity here in Australia at the moment. (laughs) Yeah. We don't have this level of health insurance involvement and interference in medical care. But it does threaten us. Yes. How often do you think this was occurring? Oh, every day. Every day. I literally had women in the office employed that worked all day long and they worked every single day trying to make sure that the patients got what we ordered, that it was going to be within network. We had to make sure that this radiology provider that you send Mrs. X for is going to be in network and be covered because if you send her to the one down the street, it wouldn't be covered. So it was just all these little nuances that they had to go through just minutia, paperwork. I can't tell you how many times I got called by patients so angry at me because I prescribed them a medication that wasn't covered on their plan. So then they would call back and say, this is $50. I want something cheaper. And I'm like, okay, what is the cheaper one? So then I have to find someone to look up for me what the medications are on her particular plan that are going to be the lower cost. That takes so much time. This is what you're dealing with as a physician during your day when you're trying to see patients. Every single day you deal with this. And it's so different from how we usually think. Yes, we try to be cost effective for patients, but as you said earlier, we're trying to provide the best evidence-based treatment. Right. What you were talking about before with the tick sheets that the insurance assessor would have, it just really speaks to me the difference in measuring value it's binary with insurances. Uh-huh. Yes, you have anemia. Yes, you have pain requiring regular opiates. Yes, yes, yes. Whereas a patient might not want to be having anemia and regular <laughs> opiate use before they have their surgery. They might want to be a little bit proactive about their health care and not get to that point. Exactly. And it takes that decision of what a patient might find valuable away from them. And that's a decision that's made in conjunction with their physician. Exactly. So now an insurer is saying, well, that's not valuable enough for us to fund that. Exactly. Which is very disempowering both for patients and for doctors. Exactly. It takes everything out of your hands as a clinician and everything that we've been trained as clinicians to do. You're, we're trying to help someone. You're trying to fix the disease process. You're trying to prevent them from getting worse. You're trying to improve wellness. But in a lot of cases, that's not valued. And then you have people who don't have the same level of training or education as you do using check boxes and flow sheets and patients are individual. Your patient might be a vegetarian that eats tons of kale and takes iron supplements religiously. So she's not anemic. She doesn't get her surgery. So I'm like, okay, stop your iron. (laughs) Is that what you're going to tell a patient? So she become anemic so that she can get her surgery? This is ridiculous. If you could say one thing to Australians now, we're watching Cigna knocking at our door, what is it that you would say? I personally would say absolutely not. It it does not work. A for-profit system does not work. We are trying as providers, as physicians, we're trying to ensure the health and wellness of our patients. Profit should never be the first and primary thing. And unfortunately, with a company, 
like Cigna, <laughs> profit is a significant part of what it has to do for its shareholders. And those two things do not go together. I, I believe that what we would see is exactly what we saw in the 1990s in the United States. And if you ask any doctor that's old enough to have practiced before the initiation of the HMOs and PPOs, they would tell you how different practice was. And practice in the United States pre-insurance companies was like it is right now in Australia. I see it going the way as the United States did. And so this is like the 1990s where Cigna, United Healthcare, and all these big companies started to come about and came up with these great ideas. But it's a for-profit entity. You cannot save money in healthcare unless you're willing to cut corners some kind of way or potentially degrade experiences and access for patients. It's just not going to work. And I would fight that tooth and nail. Here we are. Wish us luck. <laughs> we need to get this message out. Oh, we do. I don't think we understand what we're getting into. I would highly recommend people do some reading because I know a lot of people are like, wait, I don't understand. What do you mean you just go into private? It's a really hard concept to describe because it's nothing like what we have here. So that's why you have to take off what you know now and just build from the beginning. But there's so many aspects to it that people have to understand, like they're going to see all those administrators that come in that we're going to start to have to hire. So our administrative costs are going to go up immediately. It's going to be so many different problems and wedges built between the physician and their patients. And I don't think as clinicians, we realize that. It's been wonderful chatting. Is there anything else that you would like to say? Honestly, I think currently the way we have our system there's of course some things that we need to fix and tweak i'm not going to you know be pie in the sky and say it's absolutely perfect here because there's obviously places that we need to work on in our own system as it is however i definitely think this is a step in the wrong direction i think this will make it worse it will limit healthcare access more it will drive more physicians out of healthcare earlier than what they were planning. And I don't think this is going to be a win for either patients or physicians. So I, I really think that for anybody out there listening that really, really wants to do the research, hopefully take a look at some of those links that we'll put up because there's a lot that you need to know about that not, not good about this system. And I'm sure in its infancy it was supposed to really be about helping to drive down costs but everyone knows that the united states spends more on their gdp for health care than any other developed country and we do not have anything to show for it we have shameful levels of all kinds of health outcomes lower life expectancy so we don't even have anything to show for that 17% of our GDP that we're spending on our health care. So if you really want to see how not to do it, look at us. <laughs> look at the United States. We're doing the Cigna United Healthcare HMO PPOs, spending all this money, healthcare expenditure dollars, and we do not have better outcomes to show for it. Oh, I can't say anything. You've said it all. I 100% <laughs> agree with you. Well, look, thank you. Thanks so much for your time tonight. It's been... You're so welcome. Sobering. Absolutely sobering. And <laughs> I know. It's kind of depressing. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. It's good. It's good. It's We really need to hear it. We really need to let people know what is coming. Yes, thank exactly. You. Thank you. All right. You take care. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Thank you.
I hope that after listening to this episode that you are as worried about the health system as I am. I just want to point out a couple of things. First of all, there'll be some people who say, well, I only use the public health system, so what will be the impact for me? This is something that's only going to be affecting those in the private health system. Well, as we're already seeing across Australia, emergency departments are overwhelmed. There's also been a big strain on obstetric services in public hospital settings. Public hospitals, and don't get me wrong, I work in a public hospital, provide great care, but there is a limit as to how much care they can provide. And in some areas, they are already under pressure. They are stretched. So if people don't find value in their private health insurance, where are they going to go? Public hospitals. And also, thanks due to this small virus that's been circulating around the world, a lot of the public hospital waiting lists are getting longer and longer, particularly here in Melbourne where we've seen lots of lockdowns and lots of cancellations of elective surgery. The other thing to point out is that not all health insurance companies are the same. Carmen expressed her strong views about for-profit private health insurance companies. And thankfully, in Australia, not all of our health insurance companies are for-profit. We do have some health insurance companies that operate as a mutual in that benefits are distributed back to their members. It's not my job to tell you whether to switch insurance companies or not, or even to take out private health insurance. That's a separate conversation, and that's not for me to get involved with. So, having made those points, if you are concerned about the future of healthcare in Australia, then please do voice those concerns. There's a few places that you can go to for more information and I'll put the links to these in the episode notes. But the ASA website is one of them, asa.org.au and there's another website called Send the Eagle Home. What can you do? If it's before the 11th of June, Friday the 11th of June, then you can write to the ACCC and express your concerns. There's a link to their reply email on the ASA website. Just go to asa.org.au and search Manage Care or wait for it to come up on the banner and click on the link for more information. You can tell them how Manage Care might impact you as a patient, as a health provider. The reason the 11th of June is important is because the Honeysuckle Health proposal went to the ACCC last year, just before Christmas on the 23rd of December. Interesting timing. And a preliminary authorization for this proposal was given on the 21st of May. And the ACCC are seeking further comment to their preliminary authorization for the Honeysuckle Health proposal by the 11th of June. If it's after the 11th of June and you're listening to this, it is not too late either. You can contact your local federal MP or the Health Minister, Greg Hunt. You can find their contact details on the Send the Eagle Home webpage. And again, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Please do let us know if you have any questions or comments about this, then please do get in contact with us at the ASA. The best email is asa at asa.org.au. Okay, hope you get writing and stay safe out there. This podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anaesthetists. More podcasts can be found on the ASA website, asa.org.au. Music was La Toile Dance by Maidan, which can be found on the free music archive website. We hope you enjoyed listening.